Calvary Chapel, Mason City. Amen. Holidays bring back memories. And I was thinking the other day about this guy, Mike Anderson, not the guy that used to come here, but a guy that I was in elementary school with. And man, this guy was the best at kickball. <laughs> you know, you ever play kickball? I mean, he was the best. He was really the best at every sport. Now, I wasn't too much into sports. I liked to play guitar and I was really kind of scared I was going to break my hand or something. So, you know, I didn't want to do it. And, uh, but when you had to play, when Mike was on your team, man, you knew you were going to win. And so it was like Mike just won the whole thing, you know, and everybody just kind of sat back and let him go at it. And then everybody on the team reaped the benefits of this one guy who was really the victor. And that's kind of what we're going to see in our passage today is how we as Christians essentially reap the benefits of Christ, our victor. Uh, you know, memories. I don't know how these things pop into my head, but Mike Anderson, I wonder what he's doing now. He's probably playing kickball somewhere. <laughs> Last time we talked about how Jesus died in the place of sinners. This time we focus on the fact that he resurrected from the grave and is above all else victorious in the heavens. So not only Christ the substitute, but Christ the victor. That's where we're going today. Let me give you kind of the main point. Because we are united with Jesus in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, we need not fear anything that can come against us, but rather ought to be concerned with living with a clean conscience before God. So we don't need to fear enemies. We don't need to fear death. But what we ought to be concerned with is living with a clean conscience before God. Whatever you're going through today, I truly believe that you're going to find encouragement in what Peter says. Let me give you a little bit of just the context of the letter so you know what Peter's talking about. The early days of Christianity were very difficult for many believers. As we've mentioned before, this was a time of great persecution that the Christians that he's writing to had been scattered all over the uh, area of Asia Minor and that these Christians um, were essentially fleeing for their life. Essentially, the leader in Rome blamed a whole bunch of stuff on the Christians that they didn't do, and then everybody turned on them and started persecuting them. And it was persecution uh, like we can't even imagine, stuff going on that we just don't have any idea about in, in uh, Mason City, Iowa here. And they had done nothing wrong. They were just, they were righteous in Christ, but they were suffering unjustly. And so the whole letter of 1 Peter is to encourage them uh, in that time. He's been helping them to deal with unjust treatment and the suffering that comes. Now, we might not relate to persecution, but we can all relate to unjust treatment. There's been times in our life when we've been treated unfairly. There's been times where we will deal, you know, or times coming when we will deal with difficulty because of our faith in Jesus. And uh, so this letter is for anybody that's ever suffered, uh, really. If you're going through a time of suffering, you look up First Peter and, and you get some encouragement. Today, Peter's going to continue to encourage these believers. And there are four points that we'll see in this message. They're right there on the screen. The first one, salvation, proclamation, identification, exaltation. I'll talk about what we mean as we go through each one. Um, but as he encourages believers, uh, these are four words that you might want to jot down. And just they're just kind of like pegs on the wall to hang some pictures on, right? And as we go through, you'll see what I'm talking about. First of all, salvation. And we talked about this verse 18 last time a little bit. Well, actually the whole time. So I'm not going to get very far into it this week. If you want to hear more about it, listen to last week's message online. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. 
Now, Peter points his readers to the fact that Jesus died on the cross here as a substitute, where he says Christ suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. Essentially, he's saying Christ suffered on the cross. He was just. We are unjust. And this would be encouraging to them because they were suffering unjustly. And it's like Peter is saying, hey, Christ suffered unjustly as well. Now, that is a very helpful reminder by way of application right away. If you're going through something in life ever that's difficult, that you're dealing with uh, somebody treating you unfairly, it's very, it gives us a lot of help to remember that Christ, too, uh, suffered and he dealt with um, unjust treatment. You say, well, I'm in good company, you know. If you're being persecuted for your faith, if you're being made fun of, maybe you're in school, maybe you're a school-age person, you're, make, you're being made fun of at school, maybe you're at work and, and people pick on you because you're the weird Christian that doesn't want to sit and have water cooler talk with them, or maybe you don't like to get into the gossip, and maybe you don't, you know, like to, you know, maybe you don't like to watch Lady Gaga videos and all that stuff like that, maybe you're getting uh, persecution for these things. Well, just remember that Jesus dealt with unjust treatment as well. I have a tremendous help in dealing with unfair situations. I can be godly and meek and humble without sinning because I think about Christ who went through his suffering in a humble, meek way. You know, when he went to the cross, he didn't open his mouth. He didn't revile against anybody. In fact, as he hung on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And when I look to him as the example, as the guy that died in my place, the God who died in my place, that ministers to me. He suffered unjustly for me, yet without sin. He died for me to bring about my salvation, to bring me to God. Look at the end of that verse in verse 18. It says, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. So now he adds a crucial point. That one was dealing with the fact that Christ is our substitute. He died in our place. But he ends that sentence by saying that he was put to death, but then he was made alive by the Spirit. Is that capitalized, by the way, in your Bible, Spirit, the S there? The idea is that the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus from the grave. So not only is Jesus our substitute on the cross, he's also the victor. He conquered death. He came out of the grave on the third day and he was uh, raised again. Again, for Christians facing unjust treatment, it's essential to remember that he endured injustice and emerged victorious over all adversaries, including death. Now, just kind of by way of aside here, it's, I mean, we're dealing with this right now, but this is at the heart of Christianity, that Christ died, he was buried, he was put in Joseph's tomb, and on the third day, he came out of the grave. This is a distinctive of Christianity. Historical figures such as Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith, all of these other religious leaders went to a grave eventually and stayed in the grave. This is where Christianity is completely unique, is the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Now, he appeared to all of his disciples... He appeared, first of all, to the women at the tomb. Remember, they came there to anoint his body. They came expecting to find him. And remember, the gardeners said, who are you looking for? He's not here. He's risen. And they run and they tell the other disciples, John, Peter. 
Paul says that Jesus appeared in front of 500 people at one time in the book of Corinthians. And he kind of says it in the tone where he's like, go ask them. They're still alive. Many of them are still alive. Go ask them. There are so many eyewitnesses recorded in the record of scripture to the risen Christ that it's just indisputable based on the record. Now, one of the most compelling pieces of evidence for a risen Christ is the fact that all of his disciples were willing to be martyred for their faith. Now, you have all of these people willingly facing horrific death because they won't deny Jesus. Now, that's pretty interesting. That's very compelling to me. I mean, most people would hardly die for anything today, you know, or, or ever. But these guys that lived with Jesus, eyewitnesses to Jesus, hung out with Jesus, they knew who Jesus was and they knew they saw him alive. And that was so compelling to them that they were willing to go to their deaths rather than recant. Very compelling. How encouraging to those suffering to know that Jesus is alive Whatever I'm facing, I need to remember that Christ suffered. But not only that, that he is victorious over the grave and that he's here with me, with you. So first of all, Christ's suffering on the cross and the resurrection from the grave brought about our salvation. That's the first point. Now we come to this most debated, difficult text uh, in the Bible. Martin Luther was talking about it in, in his commentary, and he said, essentially, since no scholar has really ever been able to you know, nail this one down, we need to be very careful of self-confidence in this one. If you come up to me after this and you say, I know exactly what that means, I'm, I'm kind of going to chuckle under my breath because 2,000 years of Christian scholarship have haven't figured it out, but if you have, then I, you know I'm stoked for you. Um, but uh, now I want to make this note that it would have been very clear to Peter's readers what he was talking about when he wrote this. They read it; they would have known exactly what he was talking about. Here we are, two thousand years later, different culture, pretty tough to discern uh, what the ancient text means. So, verse eighteen and verse twenty-two are sort of like bookends. Look at them in your Bible there. See, verse 18, for Christ also suffered for sin, for the just, the, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. Now, if you hop to verse 22, and then it says, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. It's almost like um, a creed in the early church right there. You put those two verses together. It's very reminiscent to 1 Timothy 3.16, where he was, it, it talks very similar. It's almost like a creed, but it's, they're like, bookends. Those things kind of make sense. We can understand what he, what he said there clearly. But it's the verses 19, 20, and, and 21 is a little bit easier to understand. Those are the ones that kind of give us some difficulty. Look at verse 19. By whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few that is eight souls were saved through water. So let's look at this what we have here. So he says, by whom the beginning of verse 19. So if you look back at the end of verse 18, he's talking about the Holy Spirit by whom also he, the he is Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus went and he preached or he proclaimed something. It's the word in Greek, keruso. It's not the word euangelion. It's not, the, it's not preaching the gospel. It's proclaiming. 
It's Caruso. He proclaimed something. Typically, when somebody goes and shares the gospel, the word, uh, you know, something to do with euangelion is used, which that's the Greek word for gospel or good news. This is the word Caruso, which means to herald or proclaim something. It's typically used when somebody proclaims anything, <coughs> not just the gospel. And he proclaimed something to these spirits, whoever they are, that they're in a prison. Now we can tell from the text that that's hell. That at one point before the flood, they disobeyed. And so we can tell from the text that disobey uh, means that they failed to heed Noah's call, essentially to repentance. You guys know Noah, he built the ark, and you remember that from Sunday school, the flood comes in, all the animals, and so on. But Noah had been a preacher for 120 years telling everybody, God's judgment's coming, God's judgment's coming, but nobody listened to it. And so they were disobedient somehow to Noah's preaching while the ark was being prepared. And but the encouraging thing is, is look at there's eight souls that were saved through water. So before we get into this, it's always important to, to remember the context of the whole book. The whole book is Peter encouraging people that are going through hard times because of their faith. And already I can see a parallel. Noah went through some hard times because of his faith. Can you imagine? Here's this guy for 120 years saying, there's a huge flood coming. He's building a boat. Can you imagine what his neighbors are saying to him? Like, yeah, I don't know. When's this flood coming that you've been talking about? I mean, you know, you're, here you are building a boat. He went through um, at least some difficulty, presumably for his faith. So I can see a parallel between Peter's readers and, and Noah and his family, right? This passage, 19 through 20, has been interpreted in a few different ways. Let me give you the, the three main interpretations, okay? Now, admittedly, this is going to be some Bible nerd stuff. So if you're not so into the, you know, digging, into, you know, just bear with us, okay? So first of all, let me give you the first one. Some people think that this passage is talking about Jesus' spirit going into a place called Hades. So between his death and resurrection, he supposedly gave a second chance of salvation to the people who lived and died in disobedience before the flood. Now, the main problem with this is the Bible says, nothing about the idea of a second chance once somebody has died. In fact, it says in Hebrews, it's appointed once for man to die, then comes the judgment. So any idea of Catholic purgatory or any idea of a second chance or any idea of a doctrine called soul sleep, all of those things are not possible if what the scripture says is true. So the idea of a second chance is not found anywhere uh, in scripture. Now, I'd want to make a thought about that. Second chances, this is for you if you you're outside of Christ today. The second chance thought is kind of a good idea to some. It's, it's an appealing idea. Have you ever heard somebody say when you tell them about God and Jesus, they say, if there is a God, I'll, you know, when I die, I'll get there and I'll tell him, you know, this and that and show him how I did some good stuff and then he'll let me into heaven. Has anybody ever heard that response to witnessing? You know, you're trying to tell him you need to get right with God because if you die in your sin, you're going to hell. And the people will say, look, when I get, I'll get there, I'll talk to him. You know, it doesn't work like that. You know, that, that could be an appealing idea, but you've got this one time while you're here to get right with the Lord, 
right? And it's not that you give your life to Jesus. You don't have any life to give to him. You need to admit that you need his life and for him to fill your life. And you need to ask him for forgiveness uh, to get right with him in this life. The Bible says today's the day of salvation, right? So there is no idea of a second chance anywhere in the Bible. Now, when the holidays are here, you might be seeing family members that are unsaved. Maybe tuck that away in your mind when you decide whether you want to share the gospel with them or not. Others suggest that this refers to Jesus going to hell after being crucified to announce his victory to fallen angels. Now, these fallen angels are thought to be the same as the sons of God from Genesis chapter 6. You guys familiar with that passage? It talks about the sons of God essentially mated with human women producing a, re- a race of people called the Nephilim. And some people think that's what this is about, is Jesus went to prison, to, to the hell, to the prison where they were held, to proclaim essentially his victory uh, at the cross, his victory over death, to essentially tell them like, ah, you're sunk, you know, for sure, because it's done, it's finished, right? While this is a possible interpretation, I'm going to give you a couple of reasons why I don't think that's what's being said here. And I have to tell you, I'm outside of the typical Calvary Chapel interpretation with this, because most of the Calvary guys would tell you that's, that's the interpretation. Here's the two reasons why I, I'd say it's possibly the interpretation, but I, I don't think so. First of all, this interpretation leans heavily on the apocryphal book called First Enoch. Does anybody know what the Apocrypha is? The Catholics, have you ever noticed the Roman Catholic Bible has more books than the Protestant Bible? It's because they have included what's called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, these are a collection of books that were written during the period of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. So in that 400 silent years, they call that, the Apocrypha was written, all these different books. The councils, you know, rejected these from Scripture because they contradict things that were written by apostles, by eyewitnesses. And so they say these these are spurious books. They can't be included. However, you can learn some good things about history from these books. And so, you know, they're kind of good reading. But understand, they're not Scripture. And so this interpretation depends heavily upon the book of 1st Enoch, which talks about fallen angels that had disobeyed. But here's something interesting. In the book of 1st Enoch, it says, that these fallen angels that disobeyed, that they disobeyed in the days of Jared. Now, if you know who Jared is, Jared is the father of Noah. Now, this passage makes clear that these spirits are in prison who were disobedient during the time of Noah. So it's making clear that these were disobedient during the period while the ark was being built. So Like I say, can't be too dogmatic on any of this stuff, but that's the first reason why I don't believe that's what he's getting at, okay? Now, here's the second one. Notice in our verse where it says these spirits were disobedient. Verse 20. This word in the Greek, disobedient, I'm not going to try to pronounce it, but it means the disobedience of disbelief. The definition is to refuse to be persuaded. So it's saying that their disobedience of these spirits was disbelief. It was refusing to be persuaded. Now that would line up with people that were being disobedient to the preaching of Moses or Noah. So Noah's preaching, get right with God, judgment's coming, and these spirits, these people... 
You know, I'm dis I'm in disbelief. I'm not going to I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to believe that. So for those two reasons, I think that that you know kind of shoots some holes in that interpretation. Okay, here's the one that I kind of go with. I can say I'm not dogmatic here. We can agree to disagree. The term spirits in 1 Peter 3.20 is likely referring to the souls of the people who were disobedient during the time of Noah. In other words, the people that disregarded what Noah was saying. These people rebelled against God's message while, the no while Noah was building the ark. God waited patiently for 120 years. When the ark was finished, he decided to wipe out the evil human race except for Noah and his family. Now, the spirits mentioned are probably the souls of those wicked people now awaiting God's final judgment. So, what was this proclamation that Jesus made? Well, the Bible doesn't, you know, say exactly what Noah's message was, but in 2 Peter 2.5, it says he was a preacher of righteousness. So, he was preaching how to be right with God. We can assume that from the text. So, he was warning people of the judgment to come. Jesus tells us in that day that people were too preoccupied with their everyday earthly activities uh, to get spiritually prepared for the coming judgment. Remember Jesus says in the days of Noah they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. In other words, they were just carrying on business as usual. This crazy guy's out there building the boat telling us we're, we're wrong. We're just going to disregard him. So the question is, when did Christ, Christ preach to these spirits? Because it's saying in this passage that Christ went and preached to these spirits in prison. You tracking along? So the spirits are, the, are the, the souls of the people that disobeyed Noah. They're in hell. So when did Christ go and preach to them? Well, I believe what's going on here is the spirit of Christ was preaching through Noah. And in that sense, Christ preached to them. It was the Spirit of God at work in Noah, preaching repentance, and they disregarded him. And I think that's the most natural reading of the text. When you read the NASB version of this verse, it adds a word now, and that word now would indicate that the translators of the NASB think that, he's, that these spirits are now in hell. They're now there. And so the idea is that the Spirit of God was preaching through Noah during the days of the ark being built, and these people were rejecting for 120 years, but God was faithful. God made true on his promises. Now that fits the overall context and the overall theme of the passage because it's about maintaining a good conscience in the face of unjust persecution. It's about remaining, being sinless while you're being persecuted against. And that's the whole idea with Noah. He's presented as an example of someone who stayed true to God's message despite facing ridicule. And when judgment came, his reward was salvation for himself and his family through the flood. Noah stayed faithful and God delivered on his promises. Now that's exactly what Peter's telling his audience to do. Peter's telling his audience, yeah, things are heating up everywhere, but you need to stay faithful and God will deliver on his promises. And so I told you we were going to get into some Bible nerding today. So you just had, is your brain blown out now? So we have two more points here. So, I mean, do you guys, anybody need to stand up and stretch or need to take a break here? 
Listen, you might be facing ridicule because you follow Jesus. No matter what we face now, Noah stands as encouragement. He was righteous in a world that was anything but righteous. He warned for 120 years. No one responded. Can you imagine that ministry? Hey, I want you to come get involved in ministry. What's it entail? Preaching? For how long? 120 years? Oh, cool. Probably see a lot of fruit. Nope. None. <laughs> but you and your family, you'll get in this ark and then you'll, you'll be saved, you know. And so he was unwavering and God came through. So that's the point number two, the proclamation. I called it the proclamation. Why? Peter's readers would be encouraged, even though the world was dark and sinful all around them, they had responded to the message of Christ, the proclamation, like those safely in the ark in Noah's day, they were safe in Christ. Now Peter continues the thought of water, and he talks about baptism. So almost like he goes on here into verse 21, and he's like, speaking of water... You know, and then he says, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, so are we ready for some more of this stuff here? Okay, so here we go. Now Peter connects the water of the flood in Noah's day to the sacrament of baptism. Let me spend a few minutes talking about this word antitype. Has anybody heard that word before, antitype? Great. Everybody's like, no? Okay. So what Peter is going to do now is he's going to connect something from the Old Testament, the flood in this case, to something in the New Testament, Baptism, in this case. And what he's using is something that Bible interpreters, Bible students call typology. If anybody heard of that, Bible typology, types in the Bible? Okay. So, New Testament authors, when they look at the Old Testament, they perceive more than just historical events sometimes. They identify what are known as types or typology. In this context, a type in the Old Testament signifies a symbol that finds its fulfillment known as the anti-type in the New Testament. Let's give you an illustration. When coins are pressed in this day, they're put into, um, you know, like the, the mold, as you will, or, you know, if you will, it's like the mold and all the, the metal gets put in it and it gets pressed. So the mold is the type. This is the language being used here. The mold's the type, and then the coin that comes out of it, or the metal piece that comes out of it, then is the anti-type. You see, here's the imprint, but then here's the thing that, you know, fulfills it in a sense. It comes through, the coin fulfills it. So you have the type and the anti-type. So, let me give you a few examples of types in the Bible. There's a type of Adam as a type of Jesus. Adam from the Garden of Eden is a type of Jesus. Remember, the type is the, the mold, and then the antitype is the, the thing that comes out of it, that fulfills it, in a sense. Adam in the Garden of Eden is a type of Jesus. Romans 5.14, it says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam. And then it says, Who is a type of him is to come. In that context in the book of Romans is saying Adam in the Garden of Eden represented the whole human race. And so when he sinned, the whole human race sinned. And he's saying Jesus represents the whole human race and that what he did at the cross can be applied to the whole human race. You see the similarity between the two? 
They were both representatives. One, you know, sin came in through him, and one righteousness came in through the other one. There's another type in the Bible. I mean, there's tons of them. I was going to bring a list, you know, but I whittled it down here a little bit for time's sake. But the other one is, how about the Passover lamb? What's the Passover lamb a type of? Jesus of Christ. See, remember, uh, what you would do is you would take the blood of the Passover lamb and you'd put it, they put it on their doorposts. And then when the death angel came, the death angel came over the house, passed over the houses with the blood of the lamb. Now, Jesus, if anybody is covered by the blood of the lamb through their faith in Christ, death passes over them. So the Passover lamb is the type and then Jesus is the what? The anti-type. The high priest is the type of Christ. He goes into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and he provides atonement for the people. Jesus Christ provided atonement for the sins of the people. The tabernacle, the temple, and the furnishings, all of those are types. In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 8, verse 5, it says that all of the tabernacle, the temple, and all the furnishings in it are a type of what's going on in heaven. That's why Moses was so specific about following the directions. Uh, The author of Hebrews tells us about it. The altar of sacrifice, remember that in the temple? That represents Christ on the cross. The ark of the covenant, that represents God's covenant relationship with his his people. The ark of the covenant. It represents, uh, you know, uh, God's presence with his people. The showbread, remember the showbread that David, you know, came in with his guys and he wasn't supposed to eat it, but he ate it. The showbread represents the provision of God and then further that Christ is the bread of life. How about the lampstand in the Old Testament in the temple? In the New Testament, we even see it in the book of Revelation. It represents the light of Christ uh, in the church and in the world. How about the veil? There's another one, right? The veil that was at the the temple. It was this huge, thick piece of cloth, uh, you know, that at Christ's crucifixion and, and that at his resurrection, um, you know, in that scene in Matthew when he was crucified, he said, it's finished. What happened to the veil? It was torn. How was it torn? The details are top to bottom, signifying no man could rip this. But that veil, what it represented was man's separation from God. He's saying, you can't go beyond this. But when Christ died on the cross and he said those last words, he said, it's finished. That veil was torn and now man has direct access to God. You see, the veil was the type and then what Christ did on the cross, making access for us to God was the antitype, was the fulfillment of it. You get the idea of types and antitypes? Typology is a fascinating study. I commend it to you. Um, now, let's talk about the type and antitype of what Peter's talking about here. He says there's an antitype which now saves us baptism. Okay? <clears throat> let's look at the Old Testament. Let's look at the type first. So we're talking about the flood. The water is like judgment. It's like God's judgment. Uh, The waters of the flood served as a judgment upon the sinful world. The flood waters cleansed the earth of wickedness and symbolized God's judgment. How about Noah's Ark as salvation? Noah's Ark serves as a means of salvation from the destruction of the flood, right? Noah's saying, here's a way to be saved. Come in here, right? And the only thing they had to do was believe what Noah was saying and come into the thing. That's all they had to do. Right? And so the ark is a type of salvation. Those inside the ark were saved from the judgment that befell the rest of the world. How about the type of a new beginning, right? The flood marked the end of a corrupt world and the beginning of a new era. After the flood, God made a covenant with Noah, signifying a fresh start for humanity. 
Now let's look at the antitype, okay? Here's baptism. The water, it symbolizes this cleansing. Baptism involves the use of water as a symbolic representation of cleansing. And, you know, you go under the water, it, sim it symbolizes your old life dying. In a sense, your, you know, your sin has been judged and been washed away, and you come back up out of the water to new life. Uh, new spiritual beginning, that one's obvious. You, you, you go under the water, the old life, you come up out of the water symbolizing your new life in Christ, your new creation. Uh, salvation from judgment. Baptism, like the ark, symbolizes salvation from the judgment of sin. See, the baptism is a symbol that my old life is dead, my sin has been judged, and now I'm coming out born again. I'm coming out saved. My sin's been dealt with. Essentially, you know, when we pull the bathtub plug after you get baptized, it's like we're letting all the sin out, right? It's a symbol, you know. Also, the covenant with God. Baptism symbolizes a covenant with God. Baptism marks a covenant relationship with God through faith in Christ. Believers like Noah enter into this covenant relationship with God through their commitment to Christ, just like people entered into the ark, showing they believed in what Noah was saying. Does this make sense? Boy, oh boy, I see some of you are tracking right along here, and I thought, you know, this is early in the morning for this. Let's see how Paul talks about baptism. Romans chapter 6. Turn there in your Bible, if you would. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. <laughs> or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we, shall, we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, what Paul is doing is he's saying baptism is like Christ being crucified and put in the ground and coming out of the ground. And he says, by your faith... In Jesus, you know, you're united with Christ and you go under the water symbolizing that death and then you come back up new to life. You're resurrected. See, Paul's connecting the, the symbolism of it also. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So what he's saying in Galatians is you go under the water, you're in this process of coming up and you're putting on Christ. Now you're living in Christ. You're, you're wrapped, you're in Christ now. Colossians 2.12 says, We were buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, there's been a lot of debate about how it says baptism which there's also an antitype which saves us. So there have been some thoughtful Christians throughout the years that have said, well, you have to get baptized in order to be saved. And actually in the water, that's where you get saved. And they'll get that from this verse because they say, look, it says baptism saves us. But I think as you read the very next words, it refutes that. It says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, which we believe that's talking about spiritually. What Peter is saying is the, the water of baptism doesn't actually deal with your sin. It's a symbol of what was done with your sin. He says, but it's the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Christ is what makes all of salvation effective, all of this stuff, and baptism is a symbol of that.
It's a symbol of what happened to you in salvation. Now, where he says, he's saying that baptism is the answer of a good conscience toward God. Now, this is not without debate either, but I think what he's saying here is that as the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin and your need to be right with Christ, you come to him in faith. And then you take this step of baptism, which is showing that you have a good conscience toward him because you know that you're saved, you know you've put your faith in Christ, and you're responding to him through baptism. You're showing him that you're right with him. Essentially, Peter is saying that baptism is a sincere, serious pledge to live in good conscience toward God. It's interesting if you look at the word where it says the answer of a good conscience. That word answer is translated pledge in other translations because that's the idea of the Greek is it's the pledge of a good conscience. When I come forth to get baptized, I'm pledging to God that I'm going to live in obedience to him, that I'm going to live for him, that I'm going to live trusting him. That's what Peter, I believe, is getting at there. Baptism symbolizes your identification with Jesus' death under the water. Sin is dealt with and his resurrection. New life up out of the water, victorious over death. Is there a picture back there? Let's go ahead. Here's a picture of baptism, just in case you don't. Yeah, that's what they look like. <laughs> and uh, that's Cecilia, you know, and she's not here today. I was really hoping she was because I was trying to embarrass her a little bit. But no, she wouldn't be embarrassed about that. I love the kids watching that, right? <laughs> Isn't that good? That's that powerful symbol. You're symbolizing what happened. Your sin was dealt with. You're buried with Christ. You're united with him. You're buried and you come up out of that water into new life. And at your baptism, you're pledging to God, I'm going to live in good conscience with you. I'm going to live trusting you. I'm going to live in obedience to you. I'm agreeing with what you're saying. I'm agreeing with his judgment on my life. That sin needed to be dealt with. It was in Christ and now I'm up to new life and I'm going to live in good conscience. That's my take on it. Like I say, when we get to heaven, we can sit down with Peter and ask him what he meant here exactly. But that's, that's the best I have with it. So let's look at the last point, exaltation. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. So now he talks about uh, Christ's ascension. So Jesus came to earth. He was crucified. He died, buried, resurrected. Then 40 days later, he ascended back into heaven and he's coming back again at the end of the church age. Now, Peter saw this with his own eyes. I like this. I like reading Peter because he was an eyewitness. In Acts chapter 1, verse 9, Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and the cloud received him out of their sight. Peter saw this with his own eyes. He saw Jesus being taken uh, back into heaven, and Jesus' faithfulness is rewarded. Now he's at the right hand of God. That's the power position. That's the honored position. Jesus is in the place of ultimate authority. It says that angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. What that's saying is Christ is now exalted above, above every power, above every angelic force, every spiritual being, every power. Christ is above all of these things. How would that make you feel in Peter's day if you're dealing with suffering to be reminded? Reminded of this fact that you are identified with, united with the one who has absolute victory. Victory over sin and death. 
Absolute authority over all things. You are with him. His victory is your victory by your faith in him. Takes me back to Mike Anderson on my kickball team. I would know that we were going to win. And that's what Peter wants his readers to understand is you are united with Christ. There's nothing that can come against you in your life that can ever disrupt that.